Well, good evening, church family, as we celebrate uh, the end of a Palm Sunday. I want you to think about that day. Jesus is riding in triumphantly, and people are waving palm branches, and it's just a glorious day. And you have to know the disciples are so excited and so pumped because they, they see this is it, man. We are riding the wave of success. We are riding the wave of influence. But in just a matter of a few days, it all comes crashing down. Isn't that what's happened in our country over the last few weeks? Record stock market, record low unemployment, record jobs, record earnings. And in a matter of a few days, everything changes. From being able to go out and eat with our friends and celebrate and say, Hosanna, praise God, it's such a good time to be alive. Now we're shut up inside of our homes, businesses are closed and we're learning a different way of living and we're going to be in this for a while so what should i do in a moment like this should i be just consumed with the news should i be consumed with when will they get a vaccine should i be consumed with stuff other people are telling me to be consumed with i want to submit to you that this is a good time while we're locked away and we have limited amount of fellowship with one another for us to do some self-examination and consider the affliction of our own hearts. That we look first at ourselves. God, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to say to me? What is it you want me to learn in this moment that I may have resisted learning, have never learned, or ne it never even hit my frontal lobe for me to even think about it, about how I should deal with this. So we're going to look at the book of 1 Kings chapter 8, 1 Kings chapter 8, as we look at the affliction of our own heart. Now this is in many ways a revival message. It's a revival message because the people are in a dark and depressing and discouraging time. Norman Grubb was one of the great writers on revival, and he said, what do we mean by revival? When we come down to it, in its simplest form, it means the reviving of dead areas of our lives. It is the bringing to light of areas of our lives where we have come face to face with sin unobserved before, and we bring them to the cleansing blood that, sh that should shake us out of our misconception that revival can only come in some great soul-shaking outpouring of the Spirit. In other words, what he's saying is revival can come to us individually. What he's saying in this is that when we start examining our hearts, God begins to reveal to us those things that are keeping us from walking in the abundant life, from walking in the fullness of the Spirit, from walking in power, from walking in personal revival, even if the country is not in revival, that this is a call to self-examination. You see, this brings us to the fact, this passage is going to bring us to the fact that, that revival is costly. Hey, this pandemic is costly. But if it brings us to a point of desperation for God, 
The cost will have been worth it, even though the cost is painful. It's impacting all of us, millions of people out of work that were spending money they didn't have a few weeks ago, now wishing they had that money back. Vacations canceled. Uh, there, there's a great post that uh, I posted on our Facebook page on Thursday, a prayer for this time of pandemic from Andy Andrews. It's a great perspective qu quote and prayer that you ought to pray. You ought to pull it up and you ought to look at it and pray it. But let's go to 1 Kings chapter 8. This is at the dedication of the temple. And so in verses 15 through 21, there's a brief sermon. In verses 23 through 53, there's a long prayer. And then in verses 56 through 61, it's a benediction. Now, the background of 1 Kings 8, if you want to write it in the margins, is 1 Chronicles 28 and verse 20. And in 1 Chronicles 28, 20, David said to his son Solomon, Be strong and courageous and act. Do not fear or be dismayed. For the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you until all the work of the Lord is finished. Now, yes, that is David to his son Solomon, but it's also God to us to be strong and courageous that God's not finished with us and he will not forsake us until all the work of the Lord is finished that he's called us to do with our lives. So every time God moves us into a deeper dimension of walking with him, it is also a call to courage, to faith, and to obedience. <clears throat> so pick up in verse, uh, let's, let's start in verse uh, 37. And notice these words, because they are important in this hour in which we live. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence, blight, or mildew, locust, or grasshopper, if their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plagues, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart, and spreading his hands toward this house. Remember, he's talking about spreading his hands toward the temple, toward the place where the people gathered to meet. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place, and forgive and act and rend to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you have given to our fathers. Now again, this is a story in the Old Testament, but it does have application to us today. If we find ourselves in times of famine and locusts and blight, plagues, sickness, what are we supposed to do? Lift our hands to God and cry out to God and pray to God that he will hear us because he knows our hearts. But don't just make this general. Look at the specific thing he says. Each of us, as we are crying out to God because of this sickness, because of this plague, knowing the afflictions of our own hearts, our spiritual condition, then... 
we may fear him, fear him. There, there needs to be a little more fear of God in our land today and even within our churches. We, we have been in a season for decades of people taking for granted that the church will always be here. Well, the church will always be here until Jesus comes to take it. But we've taken for granted. Oh, it doesn't matter if I go to church this week. I'll get there next week. Oh, it doesn't matter if I miss this refreshed conference. I'll get it next year. It doesn't matter if I make it to my Sunday school class. I'll go another time. Now, the common theme of people is, I wish I could go. I wish I could be there. I wish I could fellowship with my friends. I wish I could hug people. I wish I could enjoy being with everybody else. But we can't. So what do we do? We look at the affliction of our own hearts. So the first thing that, that the writer talks about is the affliction. It, it's a word of a plague. It's a word of terror. It struck fear in their hearts. Something was stalking. Something was moving. It was coming in on them. It was to them, it would have been sent by God as a punishment for sin and disobedience. Now, I'm not going to predict why this came. We live in a fallen world. I talk about that a lot. We live in a world of depravity. We live in a world of selfish people that will not do anything they're asked to do because they think they're in charge. That's arrogance. And that's an affliction in their heart. I don't know if this is God's judgment on America or if God is getting us to cry out to him for revival. I don't know that yet, but there is an affliction in my own heart. The word here for affliction is a boil or a rash, and it indicates punishment or chastisement. You say, well, why would God punish America? We send all these missionaries out. Yeah, but we play with God on the fringes. God is a God of convenience in the American church. God is a God of who gives me what I want, who makes me wealthy, who makes me healthy. We have created a false God in our image and not in his image, and thus that is an affliction in our hearts. And maybe God is chastising the American church. Maybe he's pruning it. Maybe he's sifting it to find out who really follows him so we will know. In the Bible... The first mention of a plague, God sent a plague to Pharaoh to protect Sarah in the book of Genesis chapter 12. We're all familiar with the ten plagues of Egypt. I don't know why any Pharaoh would go through ten plagues, but, but he hardened his heart. Rather than it drawing him to repentance and letting the people of God go, he hardened his heart. The plagues that came on the children of Israel after experiencing a phenomenal deliverance and going through the river and the Red Sea on dry ground, all of that. They build a golden calf. God sends a plague. The plagues that came because the children of Israel, delivered by God, were murmuring in Numbers chapter 11. Because the spies brought a bad report, they were inflicted with a plague. Listen, God takes seriously how we think about him and how we talk about him. And we should be raising our spiritual language, not walking down to the least common denominator right now. There's the affliction of the heart. In history, plagues, pandemics have hit. 
I keep hearing this word unprecedented. These are, they're in some ways, yes, unprecedented. Uh, we were on a webinar this week with Andy Andrews with hundreds of people, and we talked about unprecedented. Yeah, it's unprecedented because we've never been through this, but it's not unprecedented in history. Let me give you some examples. The Black Plague struck in the 1300s like lightning. Interesting, one Italian writer said of the victims of the Black Plague, they ate lunch with their friends and dinner with their ancestors in paradise. It happened that quickly. They, got, they were well in the morning and they were dead by night. It was called the Black Death because it put black spots on skin. Fleas carried it. Now, we know that there are tens of thousands of people that have died around the world from this pandemic, but let me give you a little perspective. With the Black Plague, in five years, 25 million people in Europe died. Now, we're not talking about the population of Europe today. We're talking about the population of Europe in the 1300s. Half, uh, one third of the population of Europe died from the Black Plague, carried by fleas. Half of London died. Half of the largest city died. In fact, so many of them died. We see images of these refrigerator trucks outside of hospitals in New York where they are taking corpses because they don't have a place to put them right now. And we know this is terrible. This is unbelievable. But at the Black Plague, so many people were dying and so few people were available to help that they stacked the bodies of the dead on the street like cordwood until somebody could pick them up. We are not in unprecedented times. But we better pay attention to what God's trying to teach us. Let me give you another example. The bubonic plague. It was spread by rats. They would get on ships, and when the ship docked, it would spread it to another country. The bubonic plague. Millions of people died. We have environmental plagues. Plagues that strip trees of leaves and needles. And, and it always comes, an environmental plague, always comes from outside of the natural environment of that tree. Uh, you can see that some of these plagues have affected for the last few decades the Smoky Mountains. Certain trees are dead. You can drive by in summer and there'll just be these bare trees that are there because some exotic pest or bacteria foreign to that park got in and killed a certain species of trees. But I know where the affliction of my heart comes from. They didn't know it was fleas. They didn't know it was rats. They didn't have a vaccine for it. The environment, they may not know it initially what it is. But my affliction comes from wanting my own way and for God to act on my demands. That's my affliction. God, you need to do this and you need to do it now. And if you are God and if you want my tithe, and if you want my time, and if you want my worship, you better act like I want you to act. That is the ultimate arrogance, but it is the affliction of many hearts of people who say they love Jesus. You see, you'll never have revival dealing with sin in general. 
or in a group rather than personally. And right now, while we're isolated, we need to get alone, not just in our houses, but we need to get alone with God and ask him to show us what we need to learn. You see, if, if we come out of this and, and if everyone is a sinner, then nobody's a sinner until I take it personally. I have sinned. I have an affliction in my heart. Until I take it personally, I can't point my fingers at anybody else. Woe is me. Thou art the man is what the scripture says. This is not about dealing with the afflictions of other people's hearts. Yeah, I got members of my family. Boy, I tell you what, they better get right while we're in the middle of this. This is not about their affliction. This is about my heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to his deeds. You see, the problem of the heart is the problem that keeps us from getting a hold of God. It's a heart problem. The heart is deceitful. The plague of sin is not accidental. We willfully sin. We choose to sin. I choose to sin. You choose to sin. I mean, nobody's out there saying, well, you know, the devil made me do it. No, we choose to yield to temptation. We choose to yield to bad attitudes. We choose to yield to inconsistencies and to justify them. It's intentional. It's an attitude of the will. You see, sin is not a disease. There are people who say, well, sin's a disease. A disease won't send you to hell. Sin is what sends people to hell. A.W. Tozer said, the strength of sin is in its stealth. We don't know when it's there. It ruined, but it ruins us. Hardly anyone admits it's there. We can admit it in mass, but not personally. You know, you know at Sherwood... We're pretty big on calling people to the altar. I believe that the altar, A-L-T-A-R, will alter, A-L-T-E-R, our hearts when we bow before God and admit our desperation and our sin. You see, when we quit coming to the altar, we start sitting back like this. Well, I don't know if I agree with that or not. Well, that's his opinion. I don't think that applies to me. And you know what that is? Pride. You know why we don't have revival in our churches? Pride. You know why our homes are not spiritually healthy? Pride. And the middle letter in pride is I. It's the affliction of my own heart. Look at the application. There must be a turning, a repenting, a confessing. You cry out to God. You cry out to God. Turn our faces toward God is what he's saying in 1 Kings. One old preacher said it this way. You've got a serpent coiled up in your heart. You know, that serpent coils up in us and it cuddles us. And it pampers us. And it's, it's okay there are no consequences to your living this way. There are no consequences. It's okay. He convinces us it's okay. Or he convinces us we can control that affliction by self-will. And we can't. 
and we run off the rails and we go into the ditch and we make a detour. And we go, why is this happening to me? Because there's a serpent coiled up in our hearts. That serpent can coil up in the heart of a preacher. It can call up in the heart of a connect group leader. It can call up in the heart of a mom or a dad or a child or a grandmother. It can call up in anybody at any time. There are two statements that the old saints used to use. They talked about the cleansing of the forgiving love of God. The cleansing of the forgiving love of God. The blood of Jesus, the Bible says, cleanses us from all sin. The cleansing of the forgiving love of God. Listen. Even with a serpent called up in our heart, even with the affliction of our own hearts, God loves us and he wants to forgive us. He wants to offer forgiveness more than we want to ask for it. That blood of Jesus is, is like we're using all these things in our house right now and you're using it at your home to sanitize the countertop, to sanitize the handles on the faucets, to, to sanitize everything. You know, wash your hands, sanitize the doorknobs. But the bacteria comes right back, so we have to keep sanitizing. But the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Yes, we need to confess our sin. When we see one, we need to confess it. But when we come under the blood, we come under it because we understand the forgiving love of God. Secondly, the restoration of moral innocence. The restoration of moral innocence. Now one day, <clears throat> hopefully in the next month or so, when we get back to being able to gather and assemble, go out to eat and come to church, we need to remember these warnings. When Jesus would heal people and when he would forgive people, he would say things like this, you're healed, go and sin no more. Don't go back to your old way of living. The woman, where are your accusers? This woman's brought in the act of adultery. They want to throw rocks at her. Jesus forgives her. He says, where are your accusers? He tells, don't sin anymore. You look at some of the healing ministry of Jesus. What does he say to them? Don't go and sin anymore. In other words, you need to learn what I've done for you in this moment and return to moral innocence. Don't go back to your old way of living. Listen, if you get through this and you survive this, you need to thrive in your faith. And I'm not talking about for the three weeks after we come back and then summer hits and we'll see you at Christmas. I'm talking about thriving in your faith that God has spared you and given you another chance to be the spiritual leader in your home, in your community, at your work, in this church. Don't get through it and say, well, I'm glad that's over. Let's just all go get drunk. Let's just all go to the beach. Let's just all go here. Let's just all go there. Learn a lesson. Learn a lesson. He said, God knows your heart when you lift up your hands. God knowing each man's heart. And what did he talk about? He talked about them having the fear of God. I just don't believe we fear God in our world anymore. God could wipe us out and be just in doing it. Do you realize that this week, this week in Texas, because of the orders that the, that the governor of Texas laid down, that for the first time in 47 years, hear me, 
the first time in 47 years there were no abortions in the state of Texas. Ron Dunn used to say good and evil run on parallel tracks and they normally arrive about the same time. I want to tell you, people died of this virus in Texas, but there are some babies who were spared this week in Texas. So we don't necessarily always know how to judge the moment in the moment. Some never get it. Remember Cain? Cain was religious, but he brought the wrong kind of offering. He had an affliction in his heart. He did not blame Adam and Eve. It was his sin, not his parents' sin. Well, I'm this way because my mom was like that. My daddy's like that. You know, my mom and daddy fought, so we fight. My mom and daddy drank, so we drink. My mom and daddy ran around, so we run around. I mean, come on. Cain was responsible for his own sin. Jealousy rose up in him. Anger rose up in him. And he killed his brother. Achan had seen the blessings of God, had been delivered, had watched God feed and clothe and bring water to the people of Israel. They get to Jericho. Hey, don't touch this. There are things that God's reserved here. These are for God. These are under the ban. In other words, there are things set aside for God and you don't touch them. Achan touched them. He stole them. And in the shadow of blessing, in the shadow of blessing, he brought the judgment of God. He said what Eve said. I saw, I coveted, and I took. I saw it. I wanted it. I didn't care what the consequences were, so I took it. Achan's unprayed over decision of a coveting heart led to 36 men dying in the next battle and to every member of his family being killed. He cost every member of his family their lives. Why was that important? Now, I've talked about this before, but you need to remember, God always preserves something for himself, a time, a day, a tithe. That's why... I'm not apologetic about giving my tithe and giving my offerings and asking other people to do it because it's a the tithe in a time of prosperity <coughs> or in a time of crisis is a reminder that God is the owner of all things. A day in a time of prosperity or in a time of crisis. Now, I'm not talking about being legalistic. I'm just saying God always sets something aside, the tree in the garden, the day, the Sabbath, the tithe. He set aside the, the firstborn. Why? To remind us that we answer to God and that he is in control. And when I start taking every day is my day and all my money is my money, what I've got is I've got a coveting heart that I think I should control my life. That's a dangerous place to be. Ananias and Sapphira, in the heat of Pentecost and God bringing thousands of people into the church, they lied. They robbed God. And Peter said, you lied to the Holy Spirit. Now, why did God strike Ananias and Sapphira dead? Because they took for granted and they treated flippantly what the Spirit of God was doing in the church. God takes seriously purity and holiness and truth. That's why he tells us to confess our sins. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's why we need to live prayed up and forgiven, a clean slate every day. These are the things I hear from people. Now, I've heard these all my ministry. And, you know, I've been in ministry over 40 years. There's not much I haven't heard. But these are the things I hear from people. Well, I guess I just lost my head. Wrong answer. Oh, you're saved. You say you're saved. You say the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And you just lost your head. By the way, have you ever noticed that anger and temper is the only thing you can lose and it keeps coming back? Well, I lost my temper. No. You lost control of your heart. You didn't stay connected to Christ. And you let your flesh overrule your faith here's another one well i just wasn't thinking i just wasn't thinking think of how many people that's cost i just wasn't thinking think of all the teenagers that went to the beach and were already under hello there's a virus and they're all out there and then they go back to dozens of states and who knows what they're carrying with them i just wasn't thinking oh <laughs> Uh, funny, funny, ha ha, I forgot to social distance. Now your grandmother's got it. Now your mom or dad have it. You're not thinking. That's a problem. That's an affliction of the heart. That's why the Bible tells us to have a renewed mind. I, I didn't think it would go this far. I just thought this was just going to be some simple thing. Well, now we're basically in shutdown for six to nine weeks, and we don't know if it's not going to go farther i didn't think it was going to go that far sin always takes us further than we thought we would go and it always costs more than we thought it would cost uh, i didn't understand the consequences we say that when it's too late because the consequences have hit us that's a serpent hissing coiled up in our hearts and the root of it all pride so how about the appropriation what do I appropriate in this moment? There's an appropriation of hope. God never leaves us where he finds us. God wants to heal the affliction. God wants to deliver his people from the plague. So how does that happen? What are we to appropriate in this moment? First of all, the blood, the blood of Jesus. We are to appropriate the blood. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. From the garden to the ram in the bush for Abraham, from every offering in the tabernacle, in the temple, to Jesus on the cross, our deliverance from our affliction is through the blood of Jesus. We need a blood transfusion of the sinless blood of Jesus. How do we appropriate it? By fire. These are all things that the generations before us images that they understood the fire of the holy spirit burns away the dross in our lives you see this image of christ as a refiner in in the book of malachi that he sits as a refiner why he's trying to get impurities out of our life if we don't let him get the impurities out of our lives during this time and draw some lines in the sand and build some protective systems in our heart 
we will just come to another crisis and make the same bad decisions. God needs to burn up the parts of our heart that are destroying us. The Holy Spirit, the sin, the chaff, the dross. And then unfortunately, some people, the only way God ever gets their attention is through suffering. Man, while things are going good, well, go out on a boat, go on a vacation, go to Disney World, ride Space Mountain 17,000 times, go on the ride of the Resistance. Man, that's a great ride, by the way. I've been on it, and it's phenomenal. But well, if I could just get on that ride one more time, I'd be happy. And then the first thing you're going to say when you're driving out of Orlando is, when can we go again so I can be happy again? The happiest place on earth is empty right now. Your happiness cannot be found in entertainment or in sports or in activities. Your happiness, according to Jesus in the Beatitudes, is by thinking differently. Blessed, happy are those who think differently. And suffering brings us to different thinking. Because I want to tell you, the prosperity gospel is not working. It's never worked. It won't work because it's built on false premises. It's built on people claiming things that cannot be claimed in the context of the entire revelation of God in Scripture. There is no such thing in the Word of God as name it, claim it. If it were, then nobody that loved God would have ended up in captivity in Egypt. And nobody that loved God would have ended up in captivity in Babylon. And nobody that loved God would have been put under Roman oppression during the time of Christ. Sometimes suffering is the only way we get down and look up to God. Now here's the key. If I won't let God work in me, I can't ask Him to work in anyone else. If I won't let God work in me, I can't ask Him to work in anyone else. So, I want to encourage you. We're wrapping up. I want to encourage you to listen to me as we close. Quit pointing your finger at the Democrats. Quit pointing your finger at the Republicans. Quit pointing your finger at the president or the Congress or the mayor or the county commissioner or the governor or who else you're trying to point your finger at. Because when you point your finger at them, these are pointed back at you. These are pointed back at you. And we really can't pray for this nation for our doctors, for our nurses, for the medical community, for our first responders, our police and our fire department. We can't pray for all those people to do something that they need to be doing until we do it ourselves. Judgment, the Bible says, begins at the house of God. If I won't let God work in me, I can't ask him to work in anyone else. You've got family members and you just, you've been praying, Lord, I want them to change. You've got a one out there. Lord, I want them to be safe. But before we go any further, before we stay on this trail any longer, let's ask ourselves, Lord, 
I am listening. I'm all ears. Tell me the affliction of my own heart that is keeping me from fearing you. Pray about it. It would be a good time right now to pray about it.